over again, 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. John says here to us, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. And Father, we just pause humbly and ask for the help of your Holy Spirit that we might each have an ear to hear what your Spirit would say to this part of your church assembled this morning as we open and, Lord, as an act of worship, study this particular portion of your word. So speak, Lord, by your Spirit. We ask that you would say to each one of us what we need to hear, that we'd hear your voice today, and that we collectively would receive what it is you're trying to say to us as well this morning. Bless your word, and we ask this expectantly in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, in this life, there are indeed some important things for us to know. And depending upon, I think, who you are, what you are doing, or maybe what your plans are, and maybe even what matters to you most, that may differentiate between different people what is important for you to know. However, for the child of God, that is those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, there are certain important things for all of us to know. There are certain things that if you are a Christian, it is absolutely essential and important for you to know. And the heart of the aged apostle John, as we've talked about in his 90s at the time of the Holy Spirit using him to record these things, the heart of the aged apostle is that we would know certain things that are true spiritually, things that are true about God himself, things that are true about ourselves, things that are true about the spiritual life. In fact, if you read through the entirety of the book of 1 John, you'll find that 32 times John uses this word no in this short letter. So it's very evident that there are things that John wants us to know. And in this section, John shares some more of those things that are very important for us to know as God's children. So I would say it's wise and helpful to both pay attention and take heart what John's talking about here in this section. If you didn't notice from our reading this morning, as John opens up this next section now, beginning in verse 13 here, in the first four verses, we find John here basically using a repetitious phrase. It should have popped out at you as we were reading, particularly our first few verses this morning. And it's a concept that he's repeatedly been using in this letter. And it's a spiritual reality that's important for us to know about a person experiencing God within their life and knowing that God is at work within their life, as well as simultaneously also staying connected to God relationally. If I can, for sake of redundancy, let me just again look with me, verses 13 to 16, and notice how this one phrase repetitiously comes to the surface repeatedly. John says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he's given us of his spirit. And we've seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love God has for us. 
God is love, and he who abides in love, notice, here's our phrase repeatedly, abides in God and God in him. So in three of the four verses, verse 13, we find verse 15, again, verse 16. In three of these four verses, kind of slightly stated in different forms, John is purposely restating the same spiritual experience or reality of us knowing that we abide in God and that God abides in us. And that word abide, we've seen it before, it's a term that means to remain in. It's a term that means to continue in, or we might say to stay connected to. So whenever you see that term abide, that's the idea behind it. One translation renders this section with the repeated phrase, we live in God and God lives in us. We live in God and God lives in us. The idea is having an ongoing experience in close partnership with God, whereby two things are taking place. One, where God himself literally is living inside of us. That literally the presence of God Almighty himself by his Holy Spirit is actually within our lives, continually living within us, remaining inside of us, that God dwells within us and is there to empower us. He's referred to as the helper, the one living inside of us, the Spirit, helping us in a relationship with God as well as simultaneously that we can also and should be living in God. The idea is relationally, that we're living in close partnership with God, that we're walking in fellowship with God by living in close relationship with him. And John is trying to convey in these initial verses here, this is God's ideal. God's ideal is that this simultaneous thing would be happening where God literally is living within us by his spirit and we are also living in response to that by living in God, relationally staying connected to him in a relationship experience. And he mentions in these first four verses here as he restates that phrase, I think some of the proof, or you might say the evidences John's trying to say, of how we can know that that's actually happening. How can I know that God is living in me? How can I know that I'm living in God and living in relationship with God? Well, he mentions a few things here, which... I'm going to purposely identify in the order that they actually happen in the spiritual life as John speaks about this subject in these first four verses. The first thing that we can know, John tells us here, that God is within our life and God's working inside of us, as well as to know that we are living in relationship with God. The first thing he mentions is having a proper understanding and acceptance, as well as testifying in an unashamed way of who Jesus is, having a proper understanding and believing and receiving and being willing to openly admit who Jesus is. And we find that in verses 14 and 15, where John says here in our text, notice he declares verse 14 and 15, Jesus is the son of God. And then he also says that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. So first of all, we have to understand and accept and openly admit what we might say this, the deity of Jesus or the divinity of Jesus Christ, or we might better say the man Jesus of Nazareth who was living at one time on this earth. That, that man, Jesus of Nazareth, that he was and he is not just a good man, a godly man. He wasn't just a spiritual man or spiritual teacher who became a god, but the Bible teaches he literally was the son of God, that he was God the son. That is the second person of what we refer to as the Trinity, the triune God, one God who manifests himself in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that Jesus of Nazareth was and is the eternal son of God, the son of God who was eternally existent, who has always existed with God the Father at the throne of God, dwelling and reigning in heaven in the eternal dimension, possessing all the attributes and nature of God because he himself was the eternal God. And when we read through the scriptures, we see this repeatedly emphasized, demons, who are angelic beings that Jesus and God the Father and God the Spirit created as the creator 
demons themselves who are angels that have rebelled against God, they recognized and they acknowledged Jesus to be the Son of God. We read in the Bible in Mark chapter 3, verse 11, that unclean spirits, whenever they saw Jesus, it says, fell down before him and cried out saying, you are the Son of God. Demons recognized it. Jesus' followers realized it as he lived among them and they saw his miracles. In Matthew 14, it says that they worshiped Jesus saying, truly, you are the Son of God. As you read through the Gospels, repeatedly we find Jesus himself acknowledging that he was the Son of God. In Luke 22, it tells us that they asked Jesus, are you the Son of God? To which Jesus replied, you rightly say that I am. What you say of me is true. And when you read Jesus' words, there are numerous times where he would speak of himself as the Son of God in the first person. Or where he would attribute oneness with God the Father, indicating that he himself was God in human flesh. The hardened Roman soldier who saw Jesus dying on the cross, as he saw Jesus dying and suffering there, that Roman centurion, it says, cried out as he watched Jesus crying out, breathing his last breath, that Roman centurion said, truly this man was the son of God. This man was the son of God living among us. When you read through the book of Acts, repeatedly Jesus of Nazareth is preached as the Son of God, as the Christ, as the Messiah. When the Ethiopian eunuch came to know Christ and he wanted to be baptized because he was so excited that he had understood who Jesus was and because of the salvation and to want to express his belief. And when he was about to be baptized right before his baptism as a sign of his conversion, he declared this, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Look, it is so essential to understand that the New Testament teaches that is who the biblical Jesus is. I drive by a building every day on the way home from church when I'm going back to my house, and I always drive the same route, and I drive by a building that has the word Jesus Christ on the sign out front. But they do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's not the biblical Jesus. They have the sign on their building, but what they believe, because I know what they believe, because they're a pseudo-Christian cult, they use the word Jesus. They talk about a Jesus, but it is not Jesus who is the Son of God. That's who Jesus is. He's not a man who became a God. He's not an angel. He's not the, the brother of Lucifer. He is God incarnate, living in flesh. He's the eternal Son of God. And this is absolutely essential to know who Jesus is, to humbly accept that reality and to openly admit that. And John is saying here, when that has happened and you know that Jesus is the Son of God, that is the step to which actually God's Spirit comes inside of a person when they humbly realize that and can acknowledge that openly of who Jesus is. And secondly, we must understand as well as we're understanding what's proper about Jesus, the person of Jesus, the other thing John mentions here in verse 14 and 15 is that God's way to salvation or to be rescued from our sin, to be rescued from ourselves, to be rescued from hell and judgment and Satan, the only way is by receiving God's method of salvation, which is his son, the son of God, who was sent, John says, to be the savior of the entire world. John mentions here of one of the ways we know God is alive within us and that we are living in right relationship with God. He tells us there in verse 14, look at it, that we might testify, that is, we can acknowledge, openly admit, because we believe it and we're confident, like someone testifying in court, giving their testimony, we testify that the Father in heaven has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. Look, the Old Testament all of what we have in the 39 books of the Old Testament, clearly God predicted again and again and again that he, God, would become our Savior and that there was a way that he was going to do that. And over 300 predictions exist in the Old Testament of God saying that he would send a Savior in a set way, a specific way, and that he would come to earth 
and provide a way of salvation from our guilt, from our own sin, and the punishment our sin deserves in order to be a deliverer, to set us free from the condition of our soul and spiritually. And God in his love did this by sending his son in a specific way, the Bible says, to be the Savior. Now, important to recognize, because oftentimes I think we, we become so familiar with this kind of language that we gloss over what a Savior really means. A Savior means someone who rescues, who delivers, who spares another from destruction or punishment. That's what a Savior is. A Savior is, is, is one who, when you are dangling off the edge of a cliff, and about to perish, and your strength is waning, and there is no way that you can not only pull yourself back up and get off the cliff before you plunge to your painful, destructive death, but you can't even hold on for an extended period of time, and you are going to perish. A savior would be someone being able to reach down and to take your hand in your desperate condition and spare you from utter destruction to rescue you from painful destruction. That's what a savior is. A savior is someone who intervenes to deliver, to spare another from punishment or destruction. And the Bible says that is what Jesus was sent for spiritually, to be a savior. And so crucial that we understand the Bible teaches that we all sin, and that's not a trivial matter. The Bible teaches that we all fall short of God's standard. The one universal thing that we all share in this room this morning, which is why we get along to some degree better than the world does, is we all know this. Failure. That's what we all know. And even as Christians, sometimes we may self-righteously want to look across the room. Well, not to the degree that person is. But look, the bottom line is you commit one crime from a judicial standpoint, you're a lawbreaker. You commit the worst crimes in the country and they can make a documentary about you because you're the worst criminal in history. You're still a lawbreaker. God's a righteous God. One violation makes us a lawbreaker. One violation makes us guilty. Certainly sin may have different consequences and sometimes we get a little too entangled in that, but the reality is God's a holy, righteous God and we are all sinful human beings. We all fail. We all miss the mark. We think things that we shouldn't think. We say things we shouldn't say. We've done things and do things that we shouldn't do. And in justice, we deserve punishment, eternal punishment. The Bible teaches the soul that sins shall surely die, not just that we die physically, but that we will perish in torment and suffering forever and ever and ever, the Bible teaches, in a lake of fire which is the just punishment that we deserve for our offense towards a holy God. And to add on top of that, as we sin, we just ruin our lives in a self-destructive path. I lived for almost 18 years rebelling against God, not, and, and there was nothing about that path that was good. It was a self-destructive, ruinous path. It was a path where I just did what I wanted, but ultimately I was just destroying my life. And, and that's what a life is like. Sin ruins our lives. We just, we don't steer the wheel correctly in our car. We just keep crashing and crashing and turning the wrong way and turning the wrong way. And we're lost. And we're in a condition where we are under the wrath of God and our rebellion against him. And that's why the Bible says we need a savior, someone to rescue us, to spare us. And it is so crucial to understand that reality. Because listen, Maybe you're much more noble than I am, but w when I accepted Jesus Christ, one of the primary reasons I accepted Jesus Christ was because I knew that I needed to be spared. I understood my sinfulness, my guilt, the stain of my wrongdoing and the weight of that on my soul and the reality of heaven and hell and that these were real realities it wasn't just, if you accept Jesus, Tony, you'll have a better life. Truth be told, when I accepted Jesus, my life got harder. People didn't like me anymore. People were calling me names. I just Life didn't get easier. It, to a degree, got more challenging. Now, all of a sudden, I'm denying myself and trying to love unlovable people and be patient. And what is up with this? I just, you know, hey, but... 
But again, Jesus isn't somebody to make your life better. He's not a life coach. And a lot of people want to act like that's what Jesus is. He's, he's, come on, just accept Jesus. He's a life coach. Come on, let's get excited about Jesus. Let's crank up the music. Get excited about Jesus. He's not a life coach. He is to a degree secondarily or a few levels down. But predominantly, he's a savior. And I'll tell you this. If you know him as a savior, you don't need him as a life coach because you just want to live for him as the Lord of your life because you're so thankful that he saved you. And it's that gratitude that makes you want to live for him no matter what life is doing. So God in his love sent to us his son, the Bible says, to spare us from Satan and self and from hell. And lovingly, he sent his son Jesus to be the perfect savior. God took on human flesh, God himself in the person of his son, retaining his deity and himself as God in a miraculous way entered into this world. God put the life of his son miraculously into the womb of a virgin woman so that Jesus could be born remaining fully God and at the same time have a human mother and be fully man as a human being, the God man, that he could take a second nature, a human nature. Why? So he could live out the sinless life that I can't live and you can't live to satisfy the standard of humanity before a righteous God. And then after living sinlessly in our place, he then stepped in substitutionally and took all of our guilt and he took all the punishment as he died for our sins upon the cross and suffered for us in exchange so that we could receive his righteousness and he would take away our sinfulness by suffering that on our behalf. That is what a savior does. He spares us. Matthew 1 tells us that when they were announcing Jesus's birth, that's why they were to name him Jesus because God said he will save his people from their sins. That's why when Jesus was born, the announcement was, in this day, he's born to you in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. This is why Jesus declared in John chapter three, when he said, for God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever just believes in him won't perish, strong word, perish, but have everlasting life. To which Jesus then added, and God didn't send his son into the world that the world would be condemned, but that through him the world might be what? Saved. That was the heart of God. God sent his son because we needed to be saved. And listen, it's crucial that we understand this, that we believe this with all our heart, that we humbly accept that, and that we as well, more than that, folks, would be unashamed, John says here, to testify of that. That is, we believe it so much that we're not afraid to testify, to acknowledge, to confess. He says that Jesus is the Son of God and to testify that the Father has sent him to be the Savior of the world. And look, when we come to that place, John says, that's one of the ways that you can know that God's abiding in you now, that his spirit has entered in and he's working within your life and that you are living now in right relationship with him. A secondary way he mentions that we can know God's working in us and that we're walking in right relationship with God he mentions there in the end of verse 13, a secondary thing, because God has given his spirit to us. And that's exactly how it works as far as the sequence. We believe Jesus is the son of God. We confess him to be the savior and receive him into our life and testify of that. And when we do that, what's one of the reciprocal blessings God gives when you accept Jesus Christ? He gives us his spirit. And the spirit of God, the Bible teaches, comes and dwells inside of us. God makes us come alive spiritually. We've already talked about this in, in depth, this idea back at the end of chapter three, he mentioned this exact same phrase there that God has given to us his spirit. And so again, this is what the Bible teaches that when we receive Jesus Christ as savior and Lord, as we're born spiritually, God literally enters inside of us. And his spirit comes and lives within us. And God, the spirit dwells inside of us to be our helper within, to live in relationship with God, to have power to overcome sin, to live a godly life and live in right relationship with God. And he says, this is one of the ways we can know that God is remaining, abiding in us and that we are living in right relationship with God because his spirit is within us. God's given us his spirit to assure that and to encourage that process and a third way he mentions here as well that we can know that God's at work within our life and that we're walking in right relationship with God. He mentions the end of verse 13 or end of verse or in 16. 
and we have known and believed the love God has for us, that God is love, and he who is abiding, remaining, continuing in love can know what? That he abides in God and that God abides in him. So another way we can know God's at work within us and that we are living in right relationship with God is through a personal experience with God's love in our lives. Here, John begins to build on what he kind of talked about in our study last week. He restates, notice in verse 16 there, that beautiful phrase of a description of God. He uses the same phrase we saw last week, God is love. Not that he's loving, but that God's very nature, he is the, the, the epitome of, His very essence is everything that true, perfect, high, pure, holy love is. And we talked about this in great depth last week, that term agape, which is used, which refers to the highest form of unconditional love, a love of choice, has nothing to do with the object that's loved, has everything to do with the person who's extending the love because they choose to love, to care about the welfare and the highest best of a person And that kind of unconditional, pure, perfect love stems from God. That God himself is love in his very being and therefore has great love for us. Now notice John begins to add some more color to this and some of what we talked about last week, God's great love towards us. And notice what he adds now here in verse 16. He describes knowing and believing that love that God has for us. See what he says, verse 16, we have known and believed, John says, the love, the agape love that God has for us. Now, as we talked about last week, it is a factual reality that cannot be changed that God unconditionally loves us. The depth of God's love displayed in the sacrifice of Jesus, as we talked about last time in First chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, that's specified. It is true regardless of what your past was, what your present struggles are. The love of God was displayed in the giving and the sacrifice and suffering and death of his son, Jesus. That was God's display of his love for us, and that's true regardless. Yet, experientially, truth be told, if we were all a bit honest, there are different reasons in our human brokenness that we may wrestle with, John says here, knowing and believing that for ourselves. And John here is speaking about knowing and believing. He says there, verse 16, the love that God has for us. The love God has for us is real. The struggle is, do we really believe the love that he has for us? Do we really know it in a firsthand experience? We may wrestle with believing God's love for us personally, to be real for us. And there are many different reasons for that, where we, maybe because of our own insecurities or our own personal thoughts or feelings we wrestle with or things that we've done or things that have happened to us, bad experiences, traumatic things. And and as a result, we may wrestle with unbelief of God's love for us. We may kind of believe universally God's loving, but we struggle with believing his love for us for ourselves personally. And that can be a wrestling thing that we go through. And unfortunately, when that happens, it hinders the experience because what we do is we quench the Holy Spirit who is trying to express the love of God to us. And sometimes through our unbelief and not willing to believe God's love, we can quench that loving fruit of God's spirit from working inside of us. And look, let's be very candid. God's love's incredible. It is pretty hard to believe. I mean, it is absolutely amazing when you get to the root and reality of God's love for us, it is pretty unbelievable. That's why we have to believe it, by faith, not by feelings, not by experiences, not by what's happened to us, what people have said to us. We have to choose to believe despite our insecurities or anything else. We have to choose to believe God's love for us. And it just, it does not make sense to me. I don't understand it. I don't know. But I choose to believe that. I just, I just choose to believe it. And it's a conscious choice to be willing to believe. And here's, let me say this, what the Bible says and what God says rather than what you feel or think. 
And let me encourage you. What God says of you is more true than what you think and say of yourself. Oh, I just don't know how God can lie. I just don't know how God could love me. Stop that. Are you saying God's a liar? I don't know how could God love you either, quite honestly, but I don't know how he loves me. So let's get beyond that, can we? You have to believe it. I, I just humbly choose to believe that God loves me. And see, that's important because John's going to say later, the way that he loves us is what makes us love him back. And you're hindering God loving you and you're hindering accepting God's love. You know, this is one of the things that John's saying here. He says, look, we've chosen to know and believe this love God has for us. And it's almost as if John's saying, you got to get to know this too. Believe it for yourself. Remember, John was the one disciple who called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. John just felt like he was Jesus' favorite. And what John is just humbly saying is, I just, I don't know why, I just feel like he loves me so much. And John's saying, you got you to gotta enjoy some of this. And now he's in his 90s. I'm not going to be around much longer. Believe his love for you, he's saying. Believe it. Don't hinder the love he's trying to share with you. And not only are we to believe it, that's important, but he says we have to abide in his love. He says, verse 16 as well, abiding in his love. Again, there's that term, remaining in God's love. Staying connected to God's love. Jude says it this way. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourself within the love of God. That is, if I could illustrate it, it's like remaining underneath the overflowing waterfall. Right, here's this waterfall, this waterfall, and you can go and stand under it, and it's just a continuous, and you can keep yourself under the flow of it, or you can, you can step aside and step out of it. And I almost sense that Jude saying, look, God's love is always overflowing, never runs out. You can't exhaust it. God's love is amazing. It's like this overflowing waterfall. And he says, keep yourself in that place of continually experiencing his love for you, where you just continually keep experiencing more and more the depths of his love. Keep yourself there, abide and remain in that, and keep yourself in the place where you're constantly expressing that love as a channel where you're being so overflowed by the love of God that it flows out of you to share it with other people. John goes on, verse 17, to say, and this love, this agape love of God, has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. So here John speaks of how we can tell that God's love is arriving to its intended goal that God wants it to bring about amongst his children. He uses this term perfected here, verse 17. God's love has been perfected amongst us as his children. That word perfected there doesn't mean to be perfect. It's a term that in the Greek literally means to be brought to completion, to reach an intended aim, to finally arrive at an intended goal. That's the idea there. So he's saying the love of God has reached its aim, it's arrived at its intended goal in this. This is how we can know God's love has reached its aim inside of our lives, where it has accomplished God's intended purpose and goal within our lives. How? He says, verse 17, when we find ourselves having confidence regarding the day of judgment. Isn't that interesting? This is God's intended goal, one of them with his love, that we would come to a place where we have confidence regarding the day of judgment. You know, throughout the word of God, it speaks of a coming day of judgment for humanity. That there is a set day when, as humanity, we will answer to God as creator, as judge, to be held accountable for our lives on this earth and in regards to our eternal destiny. Jesus himself spoke of this term numerous times, a day of judgment. In Acts chapter 17, there we read, as Paul was speaking, he says, God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. How? By the man, Jesus, whom he's appointed. He has given assurance to all of this by raising him from the dead. So again, God has appointed a day of judgment. The judge will be the Savior. Because the Savior knows who's saved. The Savior knows who took his hand when he said, look, I want to spare you, rescue you, deliver you. You don't have to do anything. Just let me save you. No, no. And those who ultimately say no and breathe their last breath or die in that condition or when the Savior returns, 
then he's going to become their judge. And they're going to answer on a day of judgment because he's a perfect righteous judge because he offered to spare them, to save them. And he says one of the ways that we can tell that God's love is reaching its intended goal inside of us regarding this day of judgment, which is coming. The Bible even says it's appointed for every person to die once, Hebrews 9, and then to face judgment, to give account for our lives. And the Bible says when God's love has reached its intended goal inside of our hearts, what happens is we go from being terrified of a day of judgment. We go being overwhelmed at this reality of, oh my goodness, God's going to judge the world someday? God is going to bring down wrath and punishment upon humanity someday who have rejected him and refused him? Oh my goodness, someday I'm going to die and I'm going to have to be judged or give account for my life. And some people live in terror. They're terrified of dying because they know they're going to have to give account for their life. And the Bible says one of the wonderful fringe benefits, and there are many, of the child of God who's made peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ because we believe he's the Savior and he's allowed him to save us is that we're not terrified of the day of judgment anymore. In fact, he says here, we have confidence in the day of judgment. The idea is that we have a sense of assurance that when the day of judgment is coming, we're going to be okay. And we know the day of judgment is coming, and our heart feels sad for that, and we grieve for those who still don't know the Lord the way that we do, but we're not living in fear. In fact, we actually have a degree of confidence. We're at ease. Why? Because we know we're ready for the day of judgment. We know we've been prepared because we've been spared by what Jesus has done. That's why the Bible says to us in the New Testament that as Christians who are in Christ, that we are not appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation. That's what we're going to get in the day of judgment, the fullness of our salvation, where others experience the wrath of God. How wonderful to know that we are not under the wrath of God through Jesus saving us and that Jesus has delivered us from the wrath and punishment coming on the day of judgment. And why is that possible? Don't miss it there in verse 17. Here's the only reason that's possible. Not because I perform perfectly or you do as well. He says, here's why we can have boldness, confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, that's a reference to Jesus. Because as he is, so are we in this world. Hear this statement. As Jesus is so are we in this world right now. As Jesus is right now, how is Jesus right now? Totally righteous, living in full acceptance with God the Father. Right now, Jesus being totally righteous is living in the full acceptance with God the Father at the throne in favor with God. The Bible says, as Jesus right now is in full acceptance and favor with God the Father, so we are, you and I who are followers, so we are right now in this world. So we are what? We are fully righteous and living in complete acceptance with God the Father because we're in Christ. As he is right now in heaven, so we are right now on this earth because we have a position of righteousness. It's what Romans 3 and 4 and 5 teach us about being justified through Christ and his finished work, his shed blood, that Jesus removes our sin and then imparts into our spiritual account all of his righteousness as the son of God. And so therefore we are justified before the throne of God. We are righteous and fully acceptable before God. And when God looks upon us, he doesn't see us in our sin in the past or see us even in our present struggles and fumbles and sin periodically, even as we keep living as Christians, he sees us in his son, fully righteous, fully acceptable, delivered from the wrath of God. We are accepted in the beloved. That's our condition. As Jesus is right now, so are we in Christ on this earth. That is why on the day of judgment, we can be calm. That's why we can be confident. We can be assured, not because I performed well last week as a Christian, and good, I'm glad he came on this week, because if he would have come on last week, woo! And we all chuckle because we know those weeks. But see, as he is righteous, accepted with God the Father, so are we right now by our faith. It's an imparted position. It's not about your practice. It's your belief in the finished righteous work of Christ. 
gives you a righteous standing. So when the day of judgment comes, God's going to deal with you in his son, not according to how you're living or what you're struggling with. How wonderful to have that confidence. We're ready for eternity. We know that we're headed to heaven. We have that peaceful awareness that we're in loving favor with God as his child. And that's why we can approach God boldly now in prayer as well, because as Jesus is, we know we have that access. And we know that we can come to God even now directly because of that acceptance. John says, verse 18, going on, and there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear, notice, involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. So notice the word of God speaks of how an experience now with God's love, it does something with inside of us. What does it do? God's love, as we experience it, it works to eliminate fear from within our lives as human beings and all the symptoms that go along with being fearful. He says here in our verse, there is no fear in love. That's our word agape again. There is no fear in God's unconditional, pure, and perfect love. There's no fear to be experienced in God's sacrificial love of wanting what is best for us because love always brings a sense of security. Love brings a sense of making someone who's at ease. Love causes a person to feel secure. You show me secure children, I'll show you parents who love their kids well. You show me children who are very insecure, and potentially it's because they're not being loved well, and that's why they have insecurities. And on a much grander scale, God is a perfect father with incredible love. And because God is so loving within God's love, the Bible says there's no fear in love. God's love causes us to have a sense of security. It removes fear from us, all the reasons to be worried and insecure. Instead, it comforts us. It becomes the antidote for human fears and insecurities in our lives. And he says, the reason there's no fear in love, look what he goes on to say, verse 18, because fear involves what? Torment. The word torment means severe punishment. Fear involves the awareness, severe punishment is coming. Fear involves the concern, severe punishment and torment is gonna come upon me. And remember, this is stated in context. Context is king. What's it in context of? What did he just talk about? the day of judgment. Torment, severe punishment because of the day of judgment, which for those who don't know God and reject Jesus, there is coming a day of severe punishment and torment. And because of that very reality culminating in being cast into the eternal lake of fire where one is tormented forever and ever, that is a fear that reigns over their life. But yet the Bible says here as God's children who know his love and know our position in Christ we know that we're not headed to torment, we're headed to glory. We're headed to paradise. We're headed to being in the presence of God. And that drives fear out of our lives. That causes us to be at ease and to be comfort in our conscience and to have a sense of peace because we know we're at peace with God. That Again, fear is fear of punishment and God's love and fear are two opposing forces. That's why he says here in our verse, perfect love, look what he says, it casts out fear. The idea is the perfecting of God's love within our lives. When God's love is working to its completion in our life, it drives fear out of us. As we allow God's love to come to its complete condition of making us understand it to a greater degree, as we mature in our understanding of God's love, it begins to eliminate more fear from our lives. We become more confident, more secure as a person because we know the great love of God, it brings security. That's why he says the end of verse 18, he who fears has not been made perfect, mature, complete in God's love. What the Bible is saying there is the person who struggles with these fearful concerns, whether about Jesus' return or the day of judgment, are struggling with that because they're not fully experiencing the love of God in their heart, and that's why they're struggling with that, which means one of two things. Either potentially that person has not yet entered into a relationship with God, and they still need to be saved, and that's why they're still terrified and fearful of the torment and the day of judgment, and maybe they need to get saved, and they don't know God's love yet because they're terrified because they're still living in their sin. Or the other thing could be at times, perhaps just a believer who just needs to mature in their understanding of God's love. 
Maybe they've been beaten up with judgment and legalism and condemnation, and they, every other week they think they lose their salvation when they sneeze. And maybe they need to know the love of God and the grace of God and their spiritual position and righteousness so they realize that God's not angry at them. God loves them. And maybe they need to mature in that awareness of God's love to a deeper degree. And what great concepts this verse gives to us about love to test what love really is in a practical sense, to know how to practice love a little bit better. I mean, boy, verse 18 teaches us a great lesson in an applicable sense. Real, perfect, pure love, the Bible says, does not involve fear. So how do I know if real love's going on? In a relational sense, certainly to God and I, that's one thing, but how about on a human level? How do I know when real love is going on? There's no fear of harm. There's no fear of concern of what I might suffer. When genuine, pure, perfect love is happening, there's not stress and anxiety. There's not fear something bad may happen because fear makes someone secure. It makes someone at rest. It makes them at peace. And if there is anxiety and fear of bad things or, oh, my goodness, I might suffer, something bad may happen to me, that's a big, clear indicator love's not happening properly. That's not love going on there. No matter what someone may be saying, real and pure love alleviates fear. It brings a sense of security and ease. So if someone you love is struggling with insecurities, fear, anxiety, maybe they're stressed, they're having trouble trusting, let me give you a little encouragement by way of the word of God's applicable truth here. If they're struggling, they're stressed, they're anxious, they're fearful, they're having trouble trusting, here's what they need. Love. That's what they need. They need to be loved better because love eliminates fear. It drives out fear. They need to, first of all, come to know God's love better, so help them to come to know God's love better. And secondly, they may just need for you and I to love them better to help alleviate their struggles with insecurity and fear. And let me just say this morning, too, if you are wrestling yourself with fear over something and insecurity and just feeling anxious and, and worried and fearful, the answer may not be, and I'll get in trouble for this, a pill. The answer may be the antidote is you got to come to know God's love for you better because that'll soothe any human soul. That'll make you incredibly secure when you know the depths of God's love for you. It is an incredible ability to bring peace of mind and calm the soul of a human being, as well as notice what it does, verse 19, we then love him because he first loved us. See, our love for God's responsive. When God loves us tremendously and we're experiencing his love, the Bible says the love of Christ compels us. It just compels us to want to love him in return as we come to know his love. The Bible says we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, right? Man, how do I do that? How do I love God with my heart and soul and mind and strength? Well, if the Bible says we love him because he first loved us, our love's responsive, my best encouragement to that is get to know God's love for you more and you'll find you start loving God more. It's a responsive love that as you experience God's love, you won't have to be encouraged to love him. You'll want to love him. As you have encounters with his love, you just responsibly start to love him back to a much greater and greater degree. Now, notice how John concludes this section here. It's very interesting. Apparently, he had something on his mind. He said, by the way, that's my interpretation. If someone says, oh, I love God, and they hate their brother, John says, let's be honest, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? So John challenges a spiritual inconsistency. And when you're in your 90s, you have no problem doing that, right? <laughs> I don't care. I just, I'm going to die soon. So he just, he's, he's kind of that stage of life, right? He's not concerned about winning friends, influencing people. He just, he's just an old man who's got a lot of wisdom and he's lived. And he just says, look, let's, let's just shoot straight here. And John says, this is an inconsistency. If we're saying we love God but we are willing to harbor hatred, animosity, strong you know, despisal towards another person, even a fellow brother, a fellow Christian. 
if we're willing to do that, he says, that's not something God's in agreement with. That's not something that God's accepting of. And important to know, it's almost as if John's saying, apparently we can wrestle with this, or he wouldn't be addressing it. He's talking to Christians here. And so he says, look, this is something we have to realize. Even among God's people, relational issues happen. Problems transpire. And sometimes we like to think of ourselves as way more spiritual than what we really are. And so an offense happens or an argument happens or somebody hurts somebody or makes somebody you know, upset and then anger stirs up and then pride takes over and then resentment and bitterness and all these things that we don't admit happen, but I'll admit for you, happen. And we find ourselves kind of, well, I just, I'm frustrated with them. We wouldn't say we hate them. I'm, I'm frustrated with them or I'm, I'm trying to get over. And, and we find ourselves wrestling with kind of despising another person relationally. We may not kill them. We'll treat them like they're dead. That's what we do relationally. And John is saying here, look, this hatred can choke out the flow of God's spirit and God's love within our heart. It disrupts what the Holy Spirit's trying to do, and we may justify it because we're trying to say, oh, I love God, and we're trying to talk spiritual. And John says, look, if we're saying, oh, I love God, I love God, but yet we have this despisal in our heart towards some person because of what's happened or whatever, and we're nursing it, we're justifying it, John says, if we can say we love an unseen God, but we can't love a human being made in the image of God that God's put right in front of us, John says that is akin to self-deception. It's just lying to ourselves. We're lying to ourselves when we do that. Why? And here's the reason. Because what does God love for most? People. And God says, if you love me, shouldn't you love what I love? I love people. And look, it is so essential for us to realize unhealthy human relationships will and do hinder our relationship with God. Read Matthew 18. Somebody offends us, we're supposed to initiate and go to them and try and work it through, talk to them about it, and then forgive, reconcile, let it go, move on. That's what we're supposed to do. That's our responsibility when we've been hurt. On the other side of that, the Bible also says that Jesus said in Matthew 5, if you bring your gift to the altar and you remember your brother has something against you, that is, there's an unresolved issue. He says you should leave your gift there, go first, work out and get resolved. The human relationship then come back and worship. What's God conveying? If things aren't resolved in human relationships, God says it's going to interfere with your relationship between you and God. Your worship of God, your love of God, your and he says, don't lie to yourself about that. So important. He concludes verse 21 saying, this is his commandment, not an option, a commandment. He who loves God, did he have to say it this way, must love his brother also, it's almost as if it's reiterated. We've seen this so many times because perhaps we need to be reminded of this periodically, that this is what we have to do. It's not an option. One of the ways we show love for God is to show love to other people. So let me leave you with this this morning. Do you want to show God you love him? Perhaps the question is, who does God want you to show love to? Do you want to know if you really love God? Man, I want to know if I really love God. Who is it that you need to show love to? Let's stand. Let's